Welcome to the conversation here on The Young Turks. I am Jason Carter, filling in for Adrian Lawrence. Good to be here with you guys tonight. And I have an incredible guest joining us here on tonight's program. She is the incomparable and the fabulous Cheryl Ring, who is a fair housing and consumer rights attorney who also happens to be an LGBTQ plus activist and advocate. Cheryl, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. I'm not sure I can live up to that intro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. So much has happened in politics and people are reflecting on the last four years, the, the trauma inflicted by the Trump administration, yes, um, has been immeasurable. Joe Biden has now inherited a nation that is plagued with housing problems in, in every city with communities and families and people trying to make ends meet. Cheryl, what is your take on the housing crisis in America and where do we go from here? You know, I'm glad you bring that up because as we sit here today, 40 million people are facing eviction. Um, and yes, uh, one of the things that, that President Biden did when he was, uh, right after he was sworn in, was call on the CDC to extend its eviction and foreclosure moratoria. But that really is just a drop in the bucket with respect to what we need to be doing. Um, number one, the problem with eviction moratoriums is that they really don't address the underlying issue if you can't afford to pay your rent. Rents continue to outpace wages. Uh, even with a $15 an hour minimum wage, the average wage in every state in order to afford a one-bedroom apartment is $22 an hour. And so that is something that we need to address at the same time. And an eviction moratorium won't address if you owe eight, nine, 10 months of rent when the moratorium finally expires and you haven't been able to save enough money to pay that off. And so an eviction moratorium is good and helpful and I am certainly in favor of it, but it needs to be part of a much broader suite of policies um, beyond simply saying you cannot evict anyone or you cannot uh, foreclose on a mortgage. One of the things I'm seeing a lot in my own practice, for example, is banks who are attempting to use the moratorium as a way to refinance homeowners into predatory loans. Right. And, and that's, a, that's a problem that is going to lead to another housing bubble if we are not careful. Um, banks, are, uh, banks are seeing that right now is you have a lot of people who are not necessarily entirely educated on what options are available to them, don't understand the moratoria, and they are offering these under the guise of this is how you save your home, when in reality, a lot of homeowners have options that banks are simply not making them aware of. It, it's it's a myriad of different problems. I love how you're pointing out that the, the moratorium, while in theory is is wonderful and it gives people a peace of mind, what it is is a dangerous band-aid. Because as you pointed out, if you're upside down, you have an absorbent amount of debt into the home that you're not able to pay, what is an extra month of incurring more debt going to do for you? That's absolutely true. But one of the other things the moratorium doesn't address is landlords who take steps outside the moratorium, essentially illegal steps, perpetrating frauds upon courts to try and evict tenants anyway. I have multiple cases right now where I have landlords abusing orders of protection, domestic violence courts, making uh, alleging that tenants who do not pay rent are some kind of threat to the community as a result of being poor, or that if you invoke a COVID-19 protection, you are therefore a danger to other people in your building and trying to evict people that way. Um, and I have multiple cases like that. And the only thing, and, and, and the landlords will stipulate to this, the only thing the tenant did was either catch COVID themselves or be unable to pay their rent. 
and the landlord is arguing this is akin to violence against the landlord. And so the, not every judge is treating these with the skepticism that these cases deserve, and that's a real problem because the moratoria are designed to address you cannot evict a tenant using the eviction statute, whichever your state has, but a lot of landlords have just decided to go around those entirely. Right, right. What do you think is the most egregious thing the Trump administration has done as it concerns the housing crisis? Uh, a couple of things. Number one, um, the Trump administration's aim to gut the disparate impact rule. Uh, um, and for, for your viewers who don't understand necessarily what that is, um, there are a couple of different kinds of discrimination when you are talking about either race discrimination, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. One of those things is you can either allege disparate treatment. In other words, I treated a person differently on account of their race intentionally. And the other is disparate impact. In other words, I enacted a policy that I knew would have an impact that is different for certain groups as opposed to others. And that's really important to understand because if I enact a policy that says I will not rent to anyone who has been evicted in their life or I have not rent I will not rent to anyone who comes from this particular neighborhood or I will not rent to anyone who has ever been arrested. You are going to be creating a policy that disproportionately impacts black and brown people. Mm -hmm. um, and by attempting to gut those rules, what the, what the Trump administration did was tie a lot of lawyers' hands and basically turn back the clock on discrimination law almost 30 years. That, that's something that I'd like to see the Biden administration take the lead on, restoring the disparate impact rule um, and affirmatively furthering fair housing. That's the, the other issue that is very, really important. It was the, the issue during the campaign when we were talking about Cory Booker is going to come and invade the suburbs. What, what Trump was actually talking about was the idea that um, uh, under the Obama administration, there was this idea that we should attempt to integrate the suburbs in a way that we have not done before. And that, that's important to talk about because we remain one of the most racially segregated countries in the world. Shock, um, which is so shocking in 2021 and yes. come, which is indicative of how far we haven't come. Continue. Yeah, and, and that's, and so we see this nimbyism, not in my backyard. And that's a real problem. It, it, people who consider themselves woke, woke white people who say, well, I don't want low income housing next to me. I don't want those people. It's something I deal with in my job on a fairly regular basis. Um, and so saying that if you, uh, and so the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule essentially required municipalities to say, we are going to attempt to roll back racial segregation. And when Trump was saying, well, that will destroy the suburbs, he was he, he, to, to allow for uh, racial segregation, racial integration, rather, he was saying, well, we want to keep the suburbs white. That is essentially what he was saying. Sure. And so the, 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 the sheer amount of effort he put into that, I think, is something that the Biden administration really needs to take a look at. And these both affect the housing crisis we're seeing today because generational wealth is built from housing. And so if you are prohibiting black and brown and queer families from buying houses, from getting into the, into the suburbs, from building that kind of generational wealth that they can use, the equity in their homes to send their kids to college, that, that is how you are able to build generational wealth and insulate yourselves from, house, from the housing crisis. But here, just like the last housing crisis a decade ago, the majority of people who are impacted, the majority of those 40 million people are black, brown, and queer families.
Right. And speaking of queer families, very quickly, I just want to can you can you illuminate um, for our audience some of the rights that the Trump administration, uh, Trump administration, excuse me, tried to roll back in the last four years for our queer brothers and sisters? And what would you like to see going forward in the Biden administration? What would you like what would you like to see happen in regards to the, uh, the new administration uplifting the queer community? Uh, the first thing I'd like to point out is that the trans panic defense has to go. In 40 states, it is still considered a defense to murder if your victim was trans. That is, it is unconscionable in 2021, and I'd like to see the Biden administration take uh, the initiative on pushing through a, a ban on the trans panic defense. Um, I'd also like to see the, some kind of statutory, federal statutory scheme in the Fair Housing Act uh, to, to sort of rec rectify two issues that have been overlooked for a long time. Number one, Every week, it seemed, the Trump administration was issuing some kind of new ban on trans people in homeless shelters, trans people in the military, trans people accessing uh, accessing social services, trans people accessing Section 8 vouchers, all of, these, uh, all of these issues. And one of the ways that they're able to do this is because of the regulations that are the, the enabling regulations for the Fair Housing Act specifically state that being a quote-unquote transvestite, that is the, the word that is used from the original language, it should not be considered a disability and so we've had to sort of backdoor into it um, in order to enforce um, fair housing rights for trans people. Um, and obviously, as a trans woman myself, I do not believe that being trans is a disability. But the fact that that language is in there has made it a lot harder for those of us who are fighting for trans rights to say, well, the statute is intended to apply to us when there is an exclusion that implies, well, being trans is a disability, but not for these purposes. So I'd really like to see the Biden administration take a look at that, strike that language, and make clear that gender identity is included under the, the definition of sex uh, for fair housing purposes. And yes, the Bostock decision from last year will help with that, um, but it really should be made clear in the housing context so that the, these executive orders with respect to, to homeless shelters in particular can never happen again. Wonderful. Uh, Attorney Shaw Ring, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on The Conversation. You, you make very salient points. We're so happy to have your voice and have you on uh, the program tonight. Where can they find you online and on social media? Uh, thank you so much. You can visit me on my website, www.cherylringlaw.com. That's with an S, not a C, cherylringlaw.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at ring underscore Cheryl. Cheryl, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Welcome back to The Conversation here on The Young Turks. I'm your host, Jason Carter. Joining us now is the extraordinary filmmaker. He's an award-winning filmmaker, Sheldon Wilson, who recently crafted the film Between Black and Blue. It's a four-part compelling documentary. of uh, It's a story of two New York City detectives who were convicted of the sensational 1975 murder of a Denver businessman. It's, it's an incredible documentary. Sheldon, welcome to The Conversation. Right. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this body of work, illuminating, to say the least. What do you think, absolutely, what do you think, Sheldon, um, are, are some of the, the takeaways from, from, from this film when, you, when audiences are watching it? Well, you know, it, it is a, unfortunately, I mean, it is a, a, a story that took place 40 years ago. And one of the things I got into the story, because initially it was just a sort of fascinating tale with these larger-than-life characters, had to deal with the mafia and everything. But then as I started digging, I realized that at the core of the story was this gross miscarriage of justice. 
um, as it related to you know not only Mike Borelli but even more significant more significantly to Bob Davis. And these themes now, 40 years later, um, are still incredibly relevant today as we, we still deal with systemic racism and, and as we know, still an incredibly flawed, uh, you know, justice system. Right, right. What was it like to retrace the steps of these detectives, Sheldon? I mean, who went from being enforcers of the law, who being on, mm-hmm. on what some would say the right side of the law to being the targets of justice? Yeah, it it was it was interesting because uh, Mike Borelli. I'm not sure how much I should give away here, but Mike Borelli, he uh, after four years, he got a new trial and was found innocent again. He became a police officer again. So here here's a man, um, both uh, Mike and Bob, convicted by law enforcement, uh, but went on still very much to embrace law enforcement. Um, and it just goes to show that you know there is there there are bad apples there, um, but there are also some some good good law enforcement officers out there doing a good job. Um, so it was an interesting, um, you know, push and pull throughout the whole process. I would agree. We're going to talk about parallels in regards to the movie, but let's take a look at a clip from Between Black and Blue. On the morning of October 7th, 1975, a number of men entered a townhouse. Minutes later, Harold Levine was dead, his wife Shirley severely wounded in what Denver police called a gangland-type play. Paper said I was sent there to take over Colorado, take over the operation. There was no operation in Colorado. They wanted to just paint a picture of Colorado having a godfather the way the movies were. And nothing could be further from the truth. Well, looking at Borelli, the jurors probably felt that he didn't look like a criminal. Now, of course, he looked Italian, and some people just automatically might suspect somebody was Italian. Robert Davis. Uh, Robert Davis was a partner of mine in the New York City Police Department. There was an allegation that Mike Borelli paid me to come to Denver to kill Halloween. That is a lie. All of that is a lie. As I said, compelling stuff. That was a clip of Between Black and Blue. We have the, the filmmaker here and director, Sheldon Wilson. Sheldon, I want to ask you, do you see any parallels between movements today, such as Defund the Police and the pitfalls that were captured in between the film? Well, I, I think it still comes to accountability. And I think that's something we're still struggling with today. When this story happened uh, 40 years ago, there was no CNN. There was no no body cameras. Um, you know, so you can just imagine what what you know law enforcement was getting away with back then. Um, obviously, it's still something we are still trying to tackle, figure out now. Um, I still think we're a long way off, um, but yes, it's still very much uh, a, a accountability. I think is is really what it's about. When making a film like like Between Black and Blue for yourself as a filmmaker, what was surprising to you in your research and what you and what you learned and and things that may have um, yeah, that were very surprising and that you want to make sure were told accurately in this film. It, it, the, the thing that surprised me the most was probably um, at the time, Sergeant Robert Cantwell was the head of the organized crime strike force back then. And he gave uh, DePrero, who was a confessed participant in the murder, um, complete immunity, uh, law enforcement. The prosecutors gave him complete immunity. He went into witness protection. Forty years later, um, he was still very concerned about me trying to track down DePrero, which I eventually did. And, um, you know, it just made me wonder why, after all these years, um, is, is he still, you know, so so concerned about this story coming out? 
and it just goes to show, I think, um, to, to some extent, um, you know, I don't want to say cover up. I, you know, well, people should watch the doc and make their own decisions, but um, these stories stay relevant for a long time. They do. They do. Where can audiences view Between Black and Blue? Uh, putting me on the spot here. Uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime, uh, uh, Apple TV, uh, Vudu, Vimeo On Demand, and uh, Microsoft, the Microsoft Store. Wonderful. Sheldon Wilson, thank you so much for being on the conversation. Please go and stream Between Black and Blue. Great to see you. All the best, man. Great. Thank you very much. So they offered you immunity to testify. Yeah, they put me in a witness protection program, and that's where I've been ever since. Uh, Bob Cantwell, he called me shortly after you contacted him. He just wanted me to be aware that this hasn't really gone away. On the morning of October 7th, 1975, a number of men entered a townhouse. Minutes later, Harold Levine was dead, his wife Shirley severely wounded in what Denver police called a gangland-type play. Papers said I was sent there to take over Colorado, take over the operation. There was no operation in Colorado. They wanted to just paint a picture of Colorado having a godfather the way the movies were, and nothing could be further from the truth. Looking at Borelli, the jurors probably felt that he didn't look like a criminal. Now, of course, he looked Italian, and some people just automatically might suspect somebody was Italian. Who's Robert Davis? Uh, Robert Davis was a partner of mine in the New York City Police Department. There was an allegation that Mike Borelli paid me to come to Denver to kill Halloween. That is a lie. All of that is a lie. They handed me this album and asked me to identify who I was sitting with. And I said, no, because all black men look alike, and it was all black. My mom felt that he wasn't the one. The DA said he was the one. According to Shirley Levine, it was a black man who was pasty-faced. And Davis is a very dark-colored man. If somebody sat down to write a novel, they couldn't have written this. Marty Raskin had been poisoned in the restaurant. Morelli was in charge of the restaurant, and maybe he wanted him out of the picture. Cantwell may look like a hero, showing that there was organized crime behind all this. As it related to organized crime, this guy couldn't organize an Easter egg hunt for a six-year-old. When Elvis was having drug problems, people were wondering, how is he getting all these drugs if he's being protected all the time by Denver City police officers? Terry Lee DePrero turned out to be the star prosecution witness, and he was a nutcase. And the jury knew he was lying. When I mentioned my brother to my sister, she goes, ah, you know, he's pathological liar. It was a nightmare. A nightmare. I am appearing before you today because I have reason to fear for my husband, Michael Borelli's life, if he is sent to prison in Canyon City. Mrs. Borelli says she fears Colorado law enforcement officers, not just prison inmates, to try to kill her husband before his conviction can be appealed. They screwed us over. Uh, they screwed my whole family over. They could not afford to say that they made a mistake. All I can say is the entire decision is based on a lie. I had no idea a hit was coming. 
at the time. It just happened so quick, it was done. And there I was, right in the middle. 